Um, so this is the pinnacle of the Christian calendar today. Not Christmas, not Amazon Day, Easter. Easter, because something happens. Look, some of you are like, Amazon Day, oh, so sweet. Easter is the day that we celebrate Jesus having been dead and in a tomb, rising again and coming back to life, beating death. That's what Easter is all about. And for us, there is nothing else that the Christian hope hangs on. In fact, if this is not real, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no point in all of this. There's no point in all of us meeting here today. It is hopeless uh, apart from Jesus rising from the grave. So we're going to talk a lot about what hope means today. And not just a naive religious optimism. We're going to talk about concrete hope and where we find that. Now, before we talk about that, we got to talk about something serious about our culture right now. And nothing says, let's celebrate Easter like talking about suicide, right? Oh, man. Oh, such a bummer. But it, it, this, is, this is the reality. Ready? I was looking at this this week. This is what's facing our country right now. Between 2000 and 2016, suicide rates have actually tr jumped up 30%. They've actually tripled for young ladies between the ages of 10 and 14. It is now the second leading cause of death between those who are 10 years old and 34 years old. That's how bad it is right now. And a lot of people have kind of tried to, you know, figure out well, what's going on. Why is this happening? Why are we seeing such a, an increase in suicide rates? And some people will point out, well, maybe it's the economic disadvantages we have. We're now seeing younger generations that are feeling less optimistic about the future economically than their parents and their grandparents' generation. You know, a lot of them were like, we're going to give our kids a better future. Our kids now are saying we're not going to have a better future. Maybe it's the increased uh, pressure that young ladies have trying to compete with airbrushed images on the screens. How do I compete with that? I'm never going to feel pretty about myself. Maybe it's what we see in, in the news every day about terrorism or trafficking or that kind of stuff. And we're just thinking, man, life's not quite as safe as it once was. And maybe, maybe it's the fact, I don't, I've, I've been hearing this lately. A lot of people are really skeptical about our environment right now. They're seeing that we have polluted and we've damaged our environment so much that we don't have a lot of hope when it comes to the world we live in. In fact, Stephen Hawking, uh, the famous physicist, said two years ago before he died that we have about 100 years left to live on the planet. <laughs> Happy Easter, everybody! That one's for all you guys. Happy Easter. So, so good. Anyway, there is an increased level of hopelessness happening. In fact, uh, renowned um, public policy professor Robert Putnam from Harvard said just that. He said a lot of these trends are showing that there is an increased level of what he called hopelessness. Now, whether you feel hopeless in this room or not, that is a growing trend in America. Anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on the rise. And so we have to ask ourselves in the middle of all of this, where do we find hope? Now, here's what I believe. How we feel about hope right now has everything to do with our expectation of the future. If we're feeling good about the future, if we think the future's looking good, we're going to feel hopeful right now. Look, my wife is about 35 weeks pregnant, okay? And she is counting down the seconds until number four comes around. And it kind of goes in between hopelessness and hope because, like, that window either looks really short or really long sometimes. Look, any pregnant ladies in the house, you know exactly how she's feeling right there. But let me put it this way, too. If you are a part of an assembly line in a manufacturing plant and you're told your job five hours a day our eight hours a day, five days a week, all year long is to connect part A to part B and then hand it off to somebody else. You're not going to feel a whole lot of respect for yourself unless 
I promise something for you at the end of the year. Now, if you put two people in that job and you promise one of them $30,000 at the end of the year, they may engage it all right, but they're going to get these moments of like, man, my life is worthless. But if you compare that to the person that I promised $30 million at the end of the year, you better believe that person's whistling while they're working. Look, I'll put on a bunny costume and hand out plastic eggs all year long if someone's promising me $30 million at the end of the year. Am I right? Anyone else? Nobody else. Okay, I'm insane. Anyway, um, hope has everything to do with what you expect for the future. Now, for a lot of us, we don't have a whole lot to go on unless you're following in our camp today and realizing that our future is secure because of the one who died for us 2,000 years ago and beat that death by rising from the grave. That is why we celebrate Easter. And we're not talking again about a naive religious optimism, some sort of a, an empty, I just, you know, got to feel better about life. We see all these little spiritual maxims on Facebook, just like, hey, feel better about yourself. Today is going to be a better day. How do you know that? Anybody else? When those things go up online, you're like, how do you know that it's going to be better? I, I was talking to someone in a coffee shop earlier this week, actually, who said that his thing in life, his, his, his big slogan in life is, whatever you're going through, it doesn't matter. Just put a smile on your face. Anybody else just want to slap somebody like, who says that? For real. Like, that doesn't help when you're in the hospital and you got someone at a bedside that you don't know is going to make it through the night. That doesn't help when you just freakishly lost your job last week. Hey, it doesn't matter. Just put a smile on your face. Guys, we're talking about real hope. How do we find real hope, concrete hope? That's not vague, spiritual, empty optimism. It's rooted in something that goes beyond your circumstance. That's what we're going to talk about today. And here's what I'm going to do. I want to share with you a story of something that happened about 2,000 years ago. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, we got one in the back, and it's also going to be on the screen, so you're safe here today. But I'm going to share with you a story of a group of people who something incredibly tragic happened to. And in the middle of that tragedy, they had to figure out where is our hope. You see, there was a group of men and a group of women that had been following this guy, Jesus, for three years. And they were figuring, this, this guy wasn't just your average, ordinary guy. He wasn't just a religious teacher. He wasn't just a particular leader that was, that was more gifted than someone else. He was somebody not just anybody, he was the Messiah. These were Jewish people who rested their hope in a particular Messiah one day who would liberate them from the oppression that they were experiencing in their century and would give them a land that overflowed with peace and joy, no more war. They were hoping for this with everything inside of them. They were hoping that this one guy, Messiah, would liberate them completely. And when they looked at Jesus, they heard him say things and they saw him do things that they had never seen anyone else do before. I mean, he claimed to be the son of God. Is someone like watching the live stream right now and I'm hearing my own voice? That's so wacky. All right, please put it on silent, okay? That's going to be super distracting for me. Anyway, uh, look, I don't even want to hear myself. Anyway, um, where was I? So they're watching this Messiah. They're, they're hearing him do crazy things. They actually saw him do miracles, like with a couple of pieces of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. Like they literally saw him feed 5,000 people and it blew their minds. They saw him raise people from the dead. They saw him heal blind people and make people who could never hear from birth actually hear again. And if you think that's crazy and not possible, join the crowd because they couldn't believe it either. And we're going to find a group of people today that did not believe in the supernatural. They, they, they could not fathom it. Except there's one thing. 
The person of Jesus is the central figure of all of history. He was a Jewish carpenter with no money, no platform or privilege. And yet he's the one who changed all of history. And we have to ask ourselves, what do you do with him? So here we are, Luke chapter 24. We're going to begin in verse one. Where do you find your hope? On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, the first thing we, we realize here is that uh, Jesus had died on Friday. That's why we call it Good Friday. They could not do anything to the body between Friday and Sunday because they had the Sabbath and the Sabbath was like a no work day. Uh-uh, you just don't do anything on the, on the work day. And so they were gonna help the body on Sunday. Now, what do you mean help the body? They brought spices because they had a two-stage part to burial process in the first century. They would put the body in a particular tomb and let it decay over a year. And then they'd take the bones and put it in a box called an ossuary and then bury that in a, in a family-owned place. You know, you're welcome, kids. That was for the kids. Um, so the spices were to help the body not reek okay that's why they brought the spices and so here here's the ladies these ladies who had been transformed by Jesus one of whom who had seven demons in her she was incredibly mentally ill and Jesus healed her on the spot and her life was never the same there were others who had been healed of diseases and all sorts of other things that they never thought were even possible to cure and that and they experienced that kind of healing in him. And not only that, they were marginalized. In the first century, it was male-dominated. Jesus gave them a place. He gave them influence. He gave them a part in his movement. And so these ladies are looking at him and saying, this is our hope. And yet on this Easter Sunday, they're walking to the tomb with spices because their hope laid dead in a tomb. Now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes we can hit life and unexpected tragedy just comes from out of nowhere. Uh, I remember back in uh, my grad school days, I had to deliver news that I never thought I would ever have to deliver to my wife. Um, she was a music teacher at the time. This is my first real encounter with the finality of life. Um, I got a call from her sister and she calls me and says, hey, through tears and sobs on the other end of the phone, we're in Colorado. She's out in the Northeast. She said, dad just passed away last night. Could you tell Charity when she gets home? You try sitting for hours the rest of that day and get anything done, trying to think about how to break the news to your wife that her dad just died. It's one of the most tragic things I ever had to do. And through that experience there, I realized life is short. And people pass away unexpectedly far before you ever thought that they would. Some people in this room, you know the finality, not, of, not only of life, but certain things that you hope for in this room. I know there's some people who maybe have walked in today and you just experienced an incredible job loss and you don't know how to make ends meet now. Maybe some of you are in debt way over your head and you're thinking this is hopeless. I have no idea what to do with this. Maybe some of you, your marriages are on the rocks. You've been trying to communicate for a while now and things aren't working. There's a number of us in this room that come to this place thinking, how do I find hope when it just seems buried and locked in a tomb? This is where these women are. And they fully expected to get to the tomb and see their hope still lying dead. And then verse 2 happens. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. 
While they were wondering about this, the word wondering meaning perplexed, anxious, deep in thought, how in the world could this have happened, kind of wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. If you think that's creepy or weird, they did too. Listen to the rest of the story. In their fright, you think the first century people were more gullible than they are now? Not so much. They were scared to death. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Now, here's the first thing about Easter that we got to know. Easter tells us that Christianity is not about nice people doing nice things. Easter is not about us following a religious teacher because he was a pretty good teacher. It's not about following a movement that just helps things in the world get a little bit better. It's not about some sort of an ideology that we just buy into and we're a little bit more enlightened than other people. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity hangs on an event, a moment in history where something happens that changed the course of everybody's life from that moment on. And if that moment didn't happen, if that event was not possible, if it didn't happen, Christianity is a fraud. You heard it from a pastor. (laughs) Look, at its core, Christianity is about an event. And it's about an event about eyewitnesses who claim that they saw two things. They claim that they saw an empty tomb where Jesus should have been. And they actually physically saw Jesus alive again. That's what it hangs on, an empty tomb and a risen Jesus. Now, if you're like me, uh, some of us were thinking, how in the world is that possible? I mean, when was the last time you saw someone dead actually walk again? (laughs) That's not something we see. That's kind of the point, that it's that rare. But for some of us, we're like, man, I I need some evidence. Anybody else like an evidence person in this room? You just love evidence. You won't believe something until you see it. Uh, My mom got a phone call at one point when I was a kid growing up from my neighbor saying a bear just crossed her yard and ran into the woods. And uh, my mom relayed it to the rest of us kids. And guess what happens? Uh, Instead of being like, all right, guys, everybody in the house, I'm like, I guess I need some evidence. Is this true? So you know what I did? I took three of my buddies and we were racing into the woods to go find out, is this true? Kids, I don't recommend this, okay? We raced into the woods to go find this thing. I didn't think we'd find it. We got up over this hill. You know what happened? 50 feet away, there was that massive bear staring at us. Yeah, I almost got mauled by a bear because I was looking for evidence. In that moment, I'm like, yeah, okay, evidence. That makes sense. Let's turn around, guys. So, look, some of you, you need evidence in this room. That's who you are. You're like, I won't believe it until I see it. And so here's what we're going to do. I want to work through some of the evidence of Jesus actually rising from the dead. Because when you look at it and actually examine it, it is overwhelming. It's actually, it takes more faith to believe that he didn't rise from the, the, the grave than, than actually if he did. So first, yeah, this is what this Bible says, but how could you trust this? Like, how do we know that Jesus actually walked in this world? And how do we know that he actually died? And how do we know that they actually, in the first century, claimed that he rose again? You ready for this? In the first century, there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He was not a Christian. He was a non-biased historian. And this is what he wrote about. You ready? He said, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ, meaning the expected Messiah that a lot of people expected. When Pilate... 
He was the Roman executioner at the time. When Pilate, he was a governor, condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared, rose, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. This is verified by other historical accounts. It is not in the Bible. It's from a first century Jewish historian who says, yes, there was a Jesus. And yes, he was killed by the Romans. And yes, his followers did claim that he rose again from the dead. On top of that, we had a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus who verified that Jesus indeed was killed under Pilate. You ready? He says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. The Romans at the time, they couldn't stand the Christians because, and you can read this from history. If, if anybody wants to talk about this, I'd love to talk about it afterwards. The way they loved people was so radical that it actually eventually overthrew the Roman Empire that people thought would never fall. It was by, it was by love. And I'll tell you about that later. But anyway, Christus, which was the word for Jesus in Roman, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our uh, procurators, Pontius Pilate. Tacitus had no motivation to talk to us about Jesus and whether he actually lived and died. And yet he wrote about it because it was true. Clement of Rome, he was a first century Christian. In the early second century, he affirmed the claims that early Christians had saying that yes, Jesus in fact did rise from the grave. And in, in scripture itself, the first written account of Jesus rising from the grave was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group in Corinth verifying that, yes, indeed, like there were hundreds of people who actually saw Jesus walking. This is what he said, you ready? And for those of you who may think, man, like how do you even trust that this was, like what we have today is what they had back then? We have over 25,000 manuscripts, ancient manuscripts that actually verify that what they wrote back then is what we have today. If you want more exploration than that, we've got a group that's called The Problem of God. We'd love to explore all of that in detail with you. But this account that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 actually dates to about 15 to 20 years after. To put that in perspective, you guys remember where you were and what you were doing in 9-11? Every one of us, unless you're a kid and you, you were born after that, you remember exactly where you were and what you did in 9-11. This is what Paul basically says. 15 to 20 years ago, this happened. If you don't believe me, go ask someone. This is what he says. You ready? In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. You don't say that unless you can go talk to those people and verify it. And the crazy thing is, as you read the rest of that letter, he actually names them. <laughs> He says, you don't believe me, go talk to him. Go talk to him. Now here's the other wacky thing about this. In every one of the gospel accounts talking about the resurrected Jesus Christ, we see women as the first ones at the tomb. That's significant. Because back in the first century, nobody believed women. It's true. Their testimony was not admissible in a court of law, especially in the things that mattered. In fact, uh, there was a, an opponent of Christianity in the first century that actually said, yeah, Christianity is bogus because they rested on the testimony of a woman. That's what they said. You would not include women being the first eyewitnesses at the tomb unless it was true. 
unless it happened. If you're making this up, that's not what you would do. That's not where you would go unless it actually happened, unless it was true. Now, let me run for you, uh, through for you four other objections that people have when it comes to the resurrection, saying this is not possible. It's not possible. I'm not going to believe it. First, they say the first century people were gullible. They believed supernatural things, and we don't. We've got science. They had supernatural things. They were kind of gullible people. Now, here's the, the trouble with that. We find the women in this account wondering how is this possible? They get to the tomb. They see men dazzling in white clothes, which we know as angels from other accounts. And we, we know they didn't believe it at first. In fact, we read on that after the angels had talked to them, the women went back to the men. And this is what they said. When they came back from the tomb in verse 9, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But in verse 11, what? They did not believe the women. They didn't believe them. It's not possible. Supernatural things don't happen. Jesus couldn't come back from the grave. They weren't gullible. They weren't gullible. In fact, they were not expecting a resurrection at all. And later on in the same chapter, ready? Jesus himself goes up to them. (laughs) Check this out in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, at that point, if you'd be freaked out, join the club because this is what happened. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. Anybody else ever feel like they saw a ghost before? (laughs) That freaks you out, okay? So Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? (laughs) Like, Jesus, don't you know? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now, here's one of the really cool things about what Jesus just said in that. You know, first, first, I I mean, this is kind of a side note here, but I'm like, uh, this would be a really great time for Jesus to tell us that there are actually no ghosts because they were like, they think they saw a ghost, but that's not what Jesus said. (laughs) He's just like, no, 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 ghosts don't look like me. I'm like, (laughs) woo, okay. Um, But this is what Jesus said, you ready? Some of us in our faith traditions, we've never actually been, we've never never been given the permission to doubt and to wrestle with your doubts and to go there in places that you just don't even know. How do I believe all this stuff? I don't know if I can believe all this stuff. You, basically what a lot of us in this room were told was like, stop asking questions and just believe. Just have faith. It's not what Jesus does here. You ready? He says, why are you troubled? He doesn't say, stop doubting. He just says, why? Examine it. Why, do you, why does doubt arise in your mind? Why? I mean, just he asks the question, why? Examine it. Go ahead and look it out for yourself. And to back it up, he says, hey, here's some evidence. <laughs> Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Check it out for yourselves. Go ahead. And what I want to say to you guys too is like, man, if you've never explored this stuff, if you've never wrestled with that before, we actually have groups that meet midweek to wrestle with this stuff and actually hash it out and go there with your doubts. And we're going to be the first ones to say it's okay. If you've got frustrations, if you've got questions, if you're skeptical about all this, you are safe with us to journey because Jesus said it was okay to journey as well. They were skeptical. Second objection, the common objection is Jesus didn't really die. The objection goes like this. Yeah, he was on the cross and the Romans were punishing him, but somehow when they put him in the dead pile, he just kind of went, whoop, 
got back up to life and just hauled on out of there. And everyone was like, hey, he's alive. That's how the objection goes, okay? <laughs> like, this is the smartest people in our country trying to reason this out. The Romans were really good at one thing. Really good at it. They killed people like nobody else. And when they killed people, they killed people dead. And if they didn't kill people dead, they died. That's how it worked. When people were killed on a cross, they did not survive that. In fact, the account tells us that when a spear went right through Jesus, not only did blood come out, but water came out too. And science actually tells us that when blood and water come out, it is an indication that someone has died. They didn't have that science back then when they wrote that. They just observed what happened. We know Jesus died, period. He died. Third objection, the body was stolen. I love this one. Disciples see that Jesus died and they're like, well, that's the end of our movement. Uh, unless, let's go take the body. And then we can just keep like this movement going. We'll get power and all that stuff. And so they steal the body and they go put him somewhere else. And they're like, hey, he's alive. Let's go take the hill. Look, if I said that to you guys all today, you'd be like, he's crazy. I'm walking out right now. <laughs> so what do you do with that? First of all, nobody was expecting a resurrection. Nobody. The Greco-Roman world, their worldview was actually that the highest goal was that your spirit would be separated from your body, not that you'd come back in a resurrected physical body anymore. That's not what they were expecting, not what they were hoping. They said the highest goal was actually to be liberated from the physical world so, so we could actually attain the spiritual life. So they weren't expecting that. And the first century Jews weren't expecting that at all. It was completely outrageous. They believed in a physical resurrection, but only after everything had been put right in this world and for everybody, all the Jews who believed in God, not one person in the middle of history and not a man who claimed to be God. That was outrageous. It was so blasphemous that it got most of the early church leaders killed for it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you make something up, I'm not going to be killed over what I know is false. You know what I'm saying? If you're making something up to try to get something out of it, and you see two or three or four or five or six or seven of your buddies all die sequentially, at that point I'm saying, all right, <laughs> just kidding. You don't die for something you know is false. And yet 10 out of 11 of the early church followers died and not all in one moment scattered throughout. And they died because they were convinced that what they saw was not a ghost, but Jesus himself physically risen from the grave in a human body. They were convinced of it. There were other messianic movements around the first century, but as one historian writes, he says, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention to the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better than that. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that their original leader was alive again was simply not an option unless... Of course he was. They were convinced of it. They were convinced. The last one, last objection that I find this silly is that they found the wrong tomb. 
I'm serious. Like, these are the best objections, okay? I've looked through it. These are what people are saying. Yeah, uh, they found the wrong tomb. The ladies were, like, going up to a tomb, and, like, you know, next door is the, the Jesus tomb, and they knock on this one. <gasps> Nobody! Yay! And they come back, and they're celebrating, and it's empty. And there's a gardener out in the field that's like, uh, hey, guys, you missed the right tomb. They lived in a small, tight-knit community back in the first century. Nobody was going to get away with that kind of a mistake. And not only that, the Romans and the Jews had every uh, motivation to be able to expose that kind of a mistake. We read about it in the text in Matthew. It says that they, they told people, hey, if the tomb is empty, you know, here's a whole bunch of money. Go tell everybody that it's a, it's a lie because we want to expose this right before it gets off the, off the ground. Nobody went to the wrong tomb. The early church got off the ground and exploded off the ground. Didn't gradually rise. It exploded because they believed that the tomb was actually empty. And they believed at the core of who they were that Jesus actually rose from the grave. So you might ask, okay, that was back in the first century. What possible difference does that make for our life today? Why should I care about this? The women who'd come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and they saw the tomb. They saw how his body was laid in it. They did not go to the, right, the wrong tomb, but this is what happened. Their lives were completely changed because of this. Their lives never looked the same. In verse 10, it says, it was Mary Magdalene, again, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others who went and told this to the apostles. They rushed they knew that this news could not be held to themselves. They had to tell other people. And not only that, even after the disciples didn't believe, Peter ran to the tomb and he had to look. And then after the disciples were convinced that they saw Jesus, they had to spread the word all over the place. And the early church exploded rapidly because they had to tell everybody. Their lives were completely different. And to even to tell you how different it was, they didn't just stay in one place. They scattered all over the known world. These were fishermen and tax collectors in the first century. They went all the way to India. They went all the way to Spain. They went to Africa. They spread it quickly. They spread it rapidly. They spread it boldly. These were ordinary, unschooled men, as Acts says. And yet they went everywhere telling people about Jesus. These were people who just a few days earlier, it says that they failed to pray for Jesus in his most desperate hour. There was their leader, Peter. He was the leader of the early church. He denied Jesus three times. They abandoned him at the cross, leaving really only the women to look at him in, in pity. And the disciples did not believe it. And yet their life was completely transformed. It never looked the same after the resurrection. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? As Pastor Mark Clark put it, the rise of the early church was unique and surprising because it happened so quickly, emerging from frightened Jews who went from a monotheistic worship of God on the Sabbath, Saturday, to bold, courageous worship of a man just a week later, changing their worship to Sunday, commemorating his resurrection, and being willing to be tortured and killed as his followers for these things. And they went on to boldly proclaim things like this, that they were confident that they would be raised to life as well because Jesus rose again. They boasted, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You got nothing on us now because our king rose from the grave. They boasted nothing can separate us from the love of God because we know that nothing could separate Jesus from his father and he died for us. They were confident that they could face anything in life because if Jesus beat death, he could overcome anything in your, my, your life and my life. That's how confident they were. And they knew that because Jesus wasn't just an ordinary person. 
Jesus said that I have come to set the captives free. I've come to proclaim peace to those who've been locked in prison. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father. No one actually has hope for all eternity apart from me. You don't claim those things and have them be true unless you rise from the grave. Jesus said he was God and he proved it by physically rising out of the grave and back to life. That's what explains the rapid growth of the early church in the first century by first century unschooled ordinary Jews. Ben Meyer, scholar, said it this way. He said that it was the Easter experiences, not an ideology, not a teaching, the Easter experiences which affected the disciples' transformation is beyond reasonable doubt. It was what they saw in an empty tomb and what they saw in a resurrected Jesus that brought about that change. He says, only the appearances of Jesus brought about a new change of mood in them. You see, hope only comes when it's grounded in something concrete and they saw it with their eyes. They touched him with their hands. They heard him and he actually said, hey, you don't believe it? Hey, why don't you give me a fish? I'm gonna eat that. I'm alive. You see, hope, our expectation of the future it can't be grounded in just an, a vague religious optimism. It's got to be concrete. And for us who believe in Jesus, we know it's concrete because it happened. It happened. I love the question that the angels ask, and this is really the big so what for all of us in this room. The angels look at the ladies and they say, why? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's alive. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes life can kind of spit me up a little bit and chew me out. <laughs> chew me up, spit me out, something like that. A little backwards there. See what I'm talking about? Right now. Um, life can be crazy. And in some of those moments, I can turn to some things that actually don't have life, expecting them to give me life. And the angels looked at the women and said, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? You ever get to that place where you're just exhausted at the end of the day and you're looking for anything to give you life? You know, maybe for you, like you've had a number of people in your life that have, that you counted on that just kind of walked away and they hurt you and you've, in, in your heart, you said, man, I'm never gonna go there again. I'm never gonna entrust myself to somebody else because I know that kind of pain and I'm not going there again. I'm not gonna feel that kind of pain again. And so you kind of shut yourself out and you've, you've, you've chosen isolation as a way to protect yourself, not knowing that isolation has actually brought about death inside of you. And the same question is offered to us, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? Maybe for some of us, you're thinking that your whole identity and your meaning in life is found in how much work you do, how successful you are at work, how much accolades you have from work, how much income you get from work, and you stay awake at night thinking, man, how am I going to support my family? How am I going to get better at what I do in my job? And you're looking among the dead for the one that's alive, and it's never going to breed life for you. Maybe for some of you, like you're just so fed up with life right now, you just want to escape. And whether it's endless entertainment and shows and TV and, and Netflix, anyone ever binged on Netflix before and had that, hey, are you still watching? Look, you're looking among the dead for the living. I've been in that shame before, okay? Netflix shame. That's a real thing, okay? Anyway, uh, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? One of my girls asked me the other day, the penetrating question made me scared, actually. She said, Daddy, 
you do one thing, you do, we talk about habits in my home. It's like, you do, you do one thing a lot and you need to stop. She said, you're always looking at your phone. And then she said, you're always working. <laughs> and in that moment, I realized actually she was right. I do look at my phone too much. And as, as if Jesus and his angels were looking at me and just speaking into my ear, why, why, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? Now, for some of us in this room, we look for the living among the dead because we don't believe that the living one actually is not dead. We don't believe that Jesus rose again, and so we try to find our identity in beauty. We try to find our identity in work. We try to find our identity in family and all sorts of other things. It's not found there. Jesus said it's found in one thing, and it's if you turn your life over to me, the one who made you from all eternity, the one who's invested in you, the image of God, you're that valuable, the one who not only died on the cross for your sins, which the angels reminded them and said, you've got to remember, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He must be crucified, and on the third day, he must be raised from the dead. He did that. He had to do it because you and I had a problem. We were separated from the God of all eternity who made us because of our rebellion and our sin. It was that that separated us and put distance and a gap between us and him. This relationship between us and God was broken, but God was not okay with it. You know what he did? He stepped into human history in the person of his son and he put himself on the cross, taking the full weight of our punishment on himself that whoever would trust in him would know that that relationship is restored not because of how perfect you are or how perfect I am, but because of how perfect he is and taking the full punishment for us. And when we look to him, we know with certainty that we have hope because it's not anchored in unrealistic, naive religious optimism. It's anchored in an event and in a person who said, I love you enough to die for you. So here's the thing. Maybe for some of us in this room, we've never actually put our faith in Jesus. We've never trusted him because we, maybe we've, we've, we've been skeptical. We've been scared. Maybe we just thought supernatural things are just not possible. I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna risk that. I don't wanna get into the whole religious thing. It's a cult. But here's what I wanna do. I wanna invite you to take a next step. And maybe for some of you, that's just simply, I gotta explore this evidence and find out, is this actually really true? And maybe for some of us in this room, maybe it's actually taking that next step and saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to actually develop a real relationship with God. And so to tell you guys a little bit more about what this looks like and what difference it actually makes in concrete life right now, I wanted to show you a video of someone who's been in a part of our church for a little while who never saw any of this coming and yet experienced crazy life change in the middle of his doubt, in the middle of his atheism, coming to the place where he actually believes. So check out Mark's story. 